This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Grateful this time that we have uh, a Q&A with uh, Robert Kraft, who is the producer of the film. And uh, thanks so much for coming up uh, for it. And uh, there's, there's so much to talk about in this film. I love seeing the movie. I've seen it. I said to somebody, I think, 750 times. <laughs> and I still enjoy it, which is the sign of any good movie. And I still learn certain things from it and see funny subtleties, which I kind of want to yell at the audience. You know, when Han says, we thought, why would a woman's voice be good for this? I think, that's Han's. It's not, there's no we, that's he. You know, I thought, why would a woman's voice be good? But it's very gentle and humble of him to say we. So I, I see those little bits and think, it's just the inside baseball of knowing these personalities. Well, you really get a full feeling of all the members of the team. And, and one of the things that's so striking about the film is how much of it is about live orchestral scores. And uh, we see a lot of footage of the filming, uh, of, the, of the recording, rather, of the, these big string and horn ensembles. Mm-hmm. And uh, also in the film, Zimmer says that it's film that's keeping alive these orchestras mm-hmm. these days. It's wonderful. And uh, I, I was thinking to myself, like, how common is this kind of work these days uh, for, for orchestral scores to be uh, utilized this way or to be, for these uh, uh, big chunks of a budget to be distributed this way? It's... Um First of all, for all of you film composers in the room, um, strangely enough, one of the first questions you're going to ask when they offer you your film, or you're going to have someone ask politely for you, is, what's the budget? Because that will determine how much orchestra you can use. Um, If you're making a big Hollywood movie with a righteous music budget, you're going to score on that. Fox stage, or on the Sony stage, or the Paramount stage, or the Warner stage, or the real orchestra, and it's going to cost you, if you are all seated with a seatbelt, it's going to cost you about $100,000 a day. So it'll cost you about half a million dollars just for the orchestra portion of the score. Um, And there's always a lot of electronics, and there's other things that go into it. That might answer the question of how often do you use an orchestra. there are ways around it. Uh, Budapest, Prague, um, Slovenia, Vancouver. These are all locations that people go to score movies with an orchestra that are much less expensive. Los Angeles and London are very expensive. Um, and then there's another place people go for orchestral scores. It's called Guitar Center. <laughs> and there are these boxes on the shelf in the synth department where you have full orchestras on discs. Mm-hmm. You can even download it. So people use a lot of samples. Mm-hmm. But the orchestra does something to the molecules in the air that, that no mm-hmm. synth can... It's getting pretty good, though. It just They can't do it mm-hmm. all the way. So does that focus on orchestral music lead us to a, a select group of people with institutional training in classical music? We see a lot of the composers are able to conduct and things like this. Uh, that's a pretty rarefied skill. It's a great topic and one that's very close to my heart because I, um, yes, the answer is yes. It's 
to be a film composer, you cannot just be, it's one of the reasons that rock stars are often not film composers. One of the reasons that Trent Reznor is sitting next to Atticus Ross. <laughs> um, and their work as a team. Being a film composer involves a lot of knowledge of orchestra, of periods of music, of the way that great composers used the orchestra for very large emotional beats. And sure, you can do lots of different kinds of scores. I mean, Napoleon Dynamite was the score with an orchestra, and uh, the Dust Brothers scored Fight Club with, you know, two big bongs and a, a synthesizer. And <laughs> so there, you know, you can do film music in a lot of ways, but um, really great, wonderful, lustrous, epic film scores always involve a composer that knows how to move 80, 100 people in a room mm -hmm. to perform. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about those other ways of scoring and how they integrate into the film. I, I was interested in Trent Reznor. We see all these samples, MIDI beats, and even with Trent Reznor, he's using synths. Almost everyone has a modular synth yeah. on their wall. And uh, just thinking about the transition to electronic scores, which really happened you know, maybe 30 years ago, we were talking about the, in, right. in the film, and, and how those electronic scores have become sort of embedded into the, into the process. Um, first of all, it's embedded into the process just in terms of the technology of film scoring. Mm -hmm. The technology of film scoring is so... It's like if you've ever walked onto a film score stage, it's like NASA. I mean, sure, there's an orchestra on one side of the glass. On the other side of the glass, it's a 96-input digital console. There are a lot of people standing in front of lots of blinking lights. There are lots of screens of Pro Tools and editing and incredible synthesis going on in the room. So most film scores now, and Hans is credited at one point for combining it, but if you were going to, if we as a group were going to score a film together, the first thing we'd probably do once we got to the director has signed off on what the music will be, is we would do, I, I say this, it's a, a PG expression, prelays. We would prelay a lot of music. We prelay a lot of synthetic music. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of electronics that go into every, even if it sounds like a magnificently acoustic orchestral score, a lot of the percussion has been because you hear in your ear, you know, you hear a click because every cue's in time. And often there's a prelay of a huge percussive bed or maybe a synthetic element. So it's really a marriage now. Even if you have an orchestra playing great big pads or emotional dynamic sections, it's a marriage like every record that I work on. is Somebody will play guitar and somebody will work with Pro Tools rig. And uh -huh. It's whatever makes the noise these days. I mean, uh -huh. It makes the noise effectively or, or on the budget you have. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answered the question. Well, we were talking about uh, backstage about uh, Hans Zimmer and the score for the new Blade Runner film and how he went and got the exact synth, which is a very rare synth that Vangelis used for the original Blade Runner, yeah. to produce those particular sounds. So now we have this electronic soundscape that's yeah. really pulling from memory and pulling from uh, uh, sounds that, that are part of the sort of pop culture landscape. It's, I see it and hear it on Stranger Things. Uh -huh. um, those guys from Austin 
really use 80s synths to evoke not only the 80s vibe of the show, but there's something emotional in the kind of analog, you know, what they are, Juno 6 sound. Yeah. That's Rolling sort of, synths, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of so well done. Like John Carpenter, maybe, yeah. or... So, they, so, you know, maybe that's... Maybe those sounds have now entered the lexicon mm-hmm. um, next to tambourines and cellos as right. just another... One of the cool things about film music that I always loved is you could play... You know, people say, oh, that sounds like movie music. Or I'd get these emails from people who say, Dear Robert, could you listen to my music? It sounds like movie music. Which, before I threw that email out, I'd always think, what does movie music sound like? I mean, does movie music sound like Beverly Hills Cop? Which is, that's good movie music. Or does it sound like Gone with the Wind? Or does it sound like... uh, Juno, where you have Moldy Peaches song, you know, uh, out of tune guitars. Movie music is whatever works. Mm-hmm. And so, can you talk about the shift that they talk a, a little bit in the film? There's a there's a mention of the Graduate and Easy Rider mm-hmm. and a sort of shift towards the use of popular song. Mm-hmm. I know you're a songwriter, mm-hmm. and um, not necessarily integrated into a score, but as a separate musical moment to like pull. Uh, a, a moment out of the film and and sort of use a popular song that's already known to um, add a dimension to it. It's, I mean, this is a this is a career to talk about this because I love <laughs> right. this topic. Um, Certainly, your career is part of. Yeah, mine's actually it is a career. Um, I think that you know, if any of you are film fans, there's that book Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, about seventies film where. I think it's by Peter Biskind, and he writes about how those guys, Coppola and uh, Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese and all those, they started to change film in the 70s from these kind of the suits in Hollywood. And one of the things that happened is all those studios hired these kind of hip young music guys uh, who started to drop the needle on pop songs in movies. And to get those swinging young teenagers to come into the movies and uh, I think that what happened is that language then became the language of of films as much as film music. Uh, I inherited, I, I might have gotten my gig at Fox for a number of reasons but one of them was I'd produced some hit records and they wanted somebody that as much as I understood a little bit about film music. I understood a lot about pop music. Mm-hmm. So um, they wanted somebody who could make pop soundtracks because suddenly soundtracks were big business. And you know, The Big Chill had been successful right. and The Bodyguard had been successful. And you know, we make Titanic in my first or second year and it sells 30 million CDs. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember CDs. But um, it was interesting to do Avatar 12 years later and sell 17,000 CDs. It's a difference in math between 30 million and 17,000. Um, streaming had come in. There was no Celine Dion song. Uh, um, but uh, songs are now like anything. I mean, if you want to listen to pop music, just turn on the TV and listen to the commercials. You'll hear everything. Imagine Dragons and Skrillex and 
Cardi B, and you'll hear everybody on commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it's just the lingua franca of, uh-huh. of our culture is pop songs, and they're all throughout movies, overused. Now kind of sometimes cool. Mm-hmm. Some, some music supervisors really knocking it out with their taste. Yeah, the, supervi- the supervisors have a role in that that's quite different yeah. than, yeah. Can yeah. we talk about that? The yeah, music supervisor, very interesting gig. By the way, don't ever think of that as a career. Any of you that <laughs> come up afterwards and say, you know, I've wanted to be a music supervisor. I'm really good with, like, thinking of movie scenes when I hear my new playlist Mixtapes, that I made. Yeah. Mm. It's a really different gig than you think it is. But um, it's become a a very precious job in the movie business, which is picking the songs for movies, creating the soundtrack, mm-hmm. licensing the songs, creating very particular ma- material for Fast and Furious. You know, go get Charlie Puth and Wiz Khalifa to do a song together, or Zayn and Taylor Swift to go do a song together. Um, it's a big business, and um, it's a good one, you know, records don't sell the way they used to, and soundtracks don't sell the way they used to, so it's a little bit of a funny bit, although the number one record this week for the fourth week in a row, does anybody know what that number one record is on the Billboard Top 200 today? It's a soundtrack. It's The Greatest Showman. Very surprising to everyone that a soundtrack is number one for four weeks and that it's a soundtrack without big pop stars. The soundtrack just based on the movie and the songs in it. Kind of baffling, mm-hmm. in a way. Um, it still seems like the, mu- the uh, film industry can move more mountains than the music industry. And uh, yeah. when if, you know, putting people together in that way can still be you know, uh, coming from the same forces, and, and I'm thinking a little bit about your role in writing songs for film. What is it like to, to have a film that commissions a song? Like, uh, I know that your famous song is Under the Sea, or the, your most famous song, is that your most famous song? No, I think it's actually the one I wrote for a movie called Mambo Kings. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Because it was truly uh, kind of an epic event to... to where and where it took me, it was a it was a big song. Well, that tell year. us about that. How did um, that happen? I, uh, you know, I read this book. The Mambo Kings play songs of love. Uh-huh. It was by a Cuban author named Oscar Iwelhos, and I just I kind of like the title. And maybe I read a book review. This is a couple decades ago, three decades ago, and I read it. And I loved the book. I mean, I loved Cuba and Cuban music. I didn't know anything about Cuba at that point, but I loved Cuban music. And this whole 50s in New York seemed so cool. And and the most surprising thing about the book was that the entire book is about a song and two brothers who write a song. And I remember kind of looking through the book. Was there any indication of what the song was? Or was there a chord chart or sheet music? Nothing in the book. It's just they talk about the song and how it affected people. And I remember thinking, that's, I wish I knew what that song sounded like. The guy wrote this 400-page book about this epic story of these two brothers who get carried 
to the top of their profession as songwriters on this song called Beautiful Maria of My Soul. But you never know what the song sounds like. You just have to imagine it. Mm -hmm. I call a friend of mine to tell him about the book, and he works in movie business, and I'm just a songwriter at this point. And, um, I guess I'd scored maybe one or two films. And he said, you know, I know the guy who owns the rights who's going to direct that book into a movie. You should meet him. I guess the long story short is I finally found out who wrote that song to the book. I wrote it. Um, I scored the movie and I wrote Beautiful Maria of My Soul and uh, there's something ridiculous about that event to me that remains ridiculous uh, <laughs> on every level. Uh, I always wondered what that song sounded like. If I told you that I went to every other songwriter I knew to write the song, because I was not only the composer, but I was the producer of the soundtrack. So I was recording Tito Puente and Celia Cruz and all these amazing Cuban and Latin and Puerto Rican band leaders and making the soundtrack authentic. But we needed the song, so I went to Gloria Estefan and all these big songwriters. You could write this song. We need this song for the movie. And we got 17 demos in for me to play to the director. Because I always thought somebody else can do this better than me, I'm sure. Um, and I decided just for laughs to kind of make a demo. I mean, not really on purpose, but I'd studied Cuban boleros to make sure that whatever song came in, all the songs came in, they were kind of contemporary pop songs, Latin pop, you know, like Despacito, only 28 years ago. So I played 17 songs for the director in a meeting, and my assistant at that time on the movie had number 18 on a cassette and said there's one more and played it in the room with the director and the producer and all that. And they all went, that's the song. What is that? She said, Robert wrote that. Uh, um, kind of an aw shucks moment, but uh, Antonio Banderas sang it. Well, and then in pure Hollywood fashion, the soundtrack was bought in a big bidding war by Electra Records, and for them to get a kind of Cuban, authentic 50s band to cut the song for radio, the best they could do was to hire some people I knew who I loved, but I couldn't think and on a bet that Los Lobos from East LA, Mexican musicians who had nothing to do with Cuba and New York, and the, that was like, those are the only Latinos we have on the label. Get them. So Los Lobos cut Beautiful Maria of My Soul, which was really odd, even though I love them a lot. They did a kind of Mexican version of a Cuban song. <laughs> well, you know, we, 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 you got to mix things together, right? Yeah, it's show business. I mean, when you're working with animated stars, how do you write for them? Oh, you? that's amazing. Um, you write first. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, all the songs are always done first for an animated film. So it's the opposite of all these other features. Absolutely the opposite. They have to go into the animation having heard the song, because they have to literally, I hate to hesitate to say parrot the words, but they do. Uh-huh. And, um, or crab the words in some cases. <laughs> uh, so they animate to the... And you have to get all the lyrics right and everything clear and all that. And then all the, sometimes the orchestration is a key part where people are playing on shells or 
strumming on palm trees or something. You know, you have to have all that stuff done. Um, it's another misnomer that happens is people always say, I'd love to score a film. Maybe you have something easy like an animated film that I could score. <laughs> and I think, that's the hardest film to do. Absolutely the hardest. Horror films are the easiest. You just hit the end of the piano, just with your fist. You don't even, even have to have like any motor control. You just kind of, just when the guy's walking up the stairs, just go like that. It's scary. Out of you. I saw Get Out again last night. And um, it's amazing what you can do with like just one harp string. Ding, ding, ding. You think, oh, this guy's dead. Dead. He's dead. <laughs> That's one of the things that I loved about this film was how much uh, musical experimentation you get to see when you're looking at the way they make these scores. And, you know, I'm someone who works on experimental music. And I think a, a lot about like the opportunities. Zimmer says this too, as well. If it's the opportunity to do all of these uh, things with this developing musical experiments, developing these sounds, yeah. and thinking about the way the overlap between I saw two thousand one, a space odyssey the other night, and thinking about the overlap between modern film scores and experimental music, uh, or at least the avant-garde uh, orchestral tradition at, at the very least. But but then moving with Trent Reznor and all these. Uh, uh, experiments with the instruments, taking them apart and using different sounds and using these odd ball um, instruments. Uh, do you think that, that uh, there is some shared moment there of modernity between experimental music's coming of age and film? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that it's... I think the musician has been freed in a way mm. to find the sound. It's both freed in probably two ways. Number one, film scores always encouraged it. Jerry Goldsmith playing on mixing bowls uh -huh. came probably from, you know, I don't know, Edgar Varez or one of those guys, or, you know, he sort of knew that you could do that. John Cage sitting silently, you know, you could do things that in the guise of music that were sort of out there and sort of legitimate by and so there's that there's also you know here are the Beatles mm -hmm. playing sitars and and mm -hmm. playing the benefit of Mr. Kite they're taking strands of tape and looping it so film composers end up it's like any artist, it's what, what will work. And I think it's one of the glorious parts of film music is here you see in the movie, you know, there's Mark Mothersbaugh playing right. a or <laughs> funny stuff for the Rugrats and there's no, or Danny Elfman saying, the only rule is, wait for it, <laughs> there are no rules. So. That was cool to see how many musicians yeah. came from bands. Mark Mothersbaugh and Devo, you know, big, I'm a huge fan of that Whip music. It. And I loved that he became a composer and did all these great soundtracks for Wes Anderson films and things like that. And just to see how many of these people came from bands. I know you came from bands. And, uh, you know, that's a very different background than, you know, the orchestral background that would, you, where you'd be able to break a score up into all these. I was envious of the orchestral guys, too. I think it limited, frankly, I probably would have had a different career if I hadn't been so full of hubris about my ability to write fast, write fast pop songs. They weren't fast in tempo, but I could write a pop song really fast mm -hmm. by ear. And so I thought, well, I don't need to go to music school. I don't need to learn that other 
you know, long hair stuff. Um, I can write really convincing pop songs just understanding the chords on a piano. I get to Hollywood and I start getting offered these film scores and I hit a wall mm -hmm. because I was next to guys that could sort of write the pop songs, but they could really write orchestral music. Mm -hmm. And I was very envious and I got very nervous that I didn't have those skills. Danny kind of, so, and some people are, could learn them. Mm -hmm. I think Danny learned it, he was really good at that. Um, I think Mark learned it, he was really good at that. A lot of guys taught themselves or learned it. And a lot of guys just had that aptitude, I didn't. And it just became different. The other thing Trent Reznor can do is partner with a guy that knows it. Uh -huh. And that's what happens to a lot of rock stars these days, is you partner, it's a big new trend, find a rock star, put him with a composer mm -hmm. who can do the orchestral stuff or help steer him, but you get the rock star's sound or vibe or marquee value. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the sort of social construction of the, um, of the film score uh, world, I couldn't help but notice, you know, just the, the way in which, you know, so many of the composers are white men and, you know, the music worlds we're talking about are quite diverse. Songwriting, bands, the Cuban and Mexican music yep. scenes in L.A. or, or, or in, uh, around the country. And so are things getting more diverse in terms of race and gender because, or does this film reflect the general context in Hollywood? Uh, is this more of a function of the, the way the film focuses on orchestral music that it would, you know... Uh, uh, have so many uh, of these men that come from this background of, uh, that accrues to classical music? It's, of course, one of the great mysteries and tragedies mm -hmm. of my experience in that part of the music business. And I think it's consistent with everything we know about most directors mm -hmm. being white men, mm -hmm. hiring composers who are white men. Uh -huh. um, it's a field that has always said, oh, we're open, but the door is narrow. It is changing. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody is painfully aware, and painfully aware in this movie. Mm -hmm. You get Rachel Portman, you get Deb Debbie Lurie, you get Mervyn Warren. Mm -hmm. um, it's always been odd for me, and was kind of odd when I got to Fox. I grew up in the music business, in bands. And it was, I think, the old-fashioned word is multi-culti. I mean, my bands were, I was often the minority. And you get to the world of film music and it's all white men. It's all white and men. I was in bands which were, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire meets, you know, Rufus. It was just soul, <laughs> funk, women, men, singers. Um, and it's something that not only is changing, it has to change. And it's really changing wonderfully. I'm doing, uh, next week we start looking at selling the score of the series. Um, we're gonna, there's been a lot of interest in doing this as a TV series. And uh, in the first season, we're approaching that and one of the people we're going to Profile is uh, a young woman who's a big video game composer. Mm. She does really big video games, and she's really interesting. The only wrinkle in getting her in the series is she is painfully shy. She doesn't 
feel comfortable on camera. And she looks like a movie star, if I may be so bold. She shouldn't be shy. She just doesn't want to be seen. She likes to be behind all her synthesizers. And it's uh, something really great about it. But I've partnered with a guy who does the series Chef's Table, where he went in to the lives of chefs and talked about it. So we're going to do it with lots of composers. And I, I want to use it to encourage people of color and different gender orientation to every human being can write music mm-hmm. and and you know I teach at Berkeley College of Music and there are men and women in all the classes all the film music classes too so mm-hmm. it'll happen well it's great to hear your work yeah. on that yeah yeah and can you tell me how things you were a, a president of the Fox music for 94 to 2012 right thank you how did things change from that period in your job and in the, in the scene? Um, it's interesting. Uh, I burned out. That's one way it changed. <laughs> um, 302 movies. Life of Pi was number 302. Um, that's a lot of movies. And every single person starts each meeting on the movie by saying a couple things. They say, the director comes to you, and the first thing he says is, you know, I don't know much about music. So you want to say, why? <laughs> but you don't say that because you're an executive at a film studio. But the fact that you've made about a thousand records and done at that point 250 film scores to have the guy say, you know, I don't know much about music, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen on my movie. You say, let's go, you know, let's do it. Um, or they say, but you know, I played in a band in eighth grade, so I know what I'm talking about. You go, hey man, I played in a band in eighth grade too. Um, <laughs> That takes a toll after a while, even though the work is great, and the work is certainly great. And the wonderful part about the gig, which was wonderful and still is, is like anything. Yeah, you got to make movies that are not, you know, their product. For, but you also, you know, I did Moulin Rouge with Baz Luhrmann, spent and you know Titanic with Cameron, and all those Ridley Scott movies, and uh, those are real. Ang Lee on Life of Pi was. And I did Ice Storm with Ang Lee. I mean, it's not the movies. These directors are incredible. They're incredible humans. They're incredibly interesting artists. And talking to them about music makes your job worthwhile because they think of, Ang Lee thinks about the music in his movie as much as he thinks about the lighting. It's as important. The guy who's doing Big Mama's House 2 has been brought into Fox for about, you know, three months to slam a movie to film and get out and he just do it ship it so um, you do both it changed I think the budgets got a little smaller and the composers got more expensive it became a big deal composer fees went through the roof and they had to kind of lay out and there's something really interesting in this movie um, when they talk about Thomas Newman when I first started, directors wanted scores and had inherited a, a legacy of scores that were manipulative. You really wanted to manipulate the audience to be scared, to feel romantic, to feel melancholy. And by the beginning of this century, directors got kind of allergic to manipulating. And Thomas Newman, in some ways, you pull back. They kind of would want the composer, ah, I don't like music there. And, Ooh, no, that's telling me too much. So the 
the ethos of film music mm. has changed in certain ways. They want music that isn't directing the audience how to feel. Sort of more complex. Yeah, in situation. a way, it's, the, it's ambiguous, I guess, about what the music is saying, which is a really interesting thing. I mean, I could play you, you know, a couple things. You'd say, that's sad. I mean, it'd just be a non-starter, that's a sad melody, or those are sad chords. I could also play you something you'd say, I don't, it, it makes me feel, I don't, I don't know. It's funny that it, it's a little modern or not entirely clear what you're saying with that. And those, you know, great composers do it. And my favorite piece of music in the world is in this movie, I realized after we finished it. It's a funny moment, but it's the scene in American Beauty where that white bag yeah. is blowing. It just, I want to cry every time. It's so bittersweet. Mm. It's so odd and so emotional and so kind of holds a mirror up because it doesn't really say, feel sad. Mm. And then it goes right into that Nemo cue, which is equally <laughs> emotional. I mean, Tom Newman's great. I sat in his father's chair, which makes me very, you know, Alfred Newman's the head of music at Fox. And uh, so the Newmans I feel very devoted to, and Tom Newman is really an amazing composer. Everybody in that movie, I am yeah. so a fan, first and foremost, of that skill. Is your position as a producer for that amount of time, did that make this film possible? I'm thinking just about the rights to all of this music and how difficult it must be to get permission to use all of this material in one film. So um, there's a really amazing thing that I learned from a lawyer. It's, we did the, uh, which can happen occasionally. Yeah. Um, that movie is completely fair use. There's zero rights. Wow. It's either all illegal or it's all legal, depending on your point of view and the lawyer's Let's point of view. Let's just choose legal. He chose, he chose legal and no one has sued us yet. Fantastic. Because you're commenting, if you watch that movie again or when you watch that movie again, I think it's a buck ninety-nine on iTunes, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that almost, almost every single cue is referred to Every single cue is spoken over after just a few seconds. Every single clip is discussed. So there's nothing that isn't fulfilling the fair use requirements, which I could begin to tell you of, if it is specific and used specific and right. briefly, right. Um, you are within certain... I wouldn't try it again, frankly. It was, and it's going to be interesting on TV because they're wise to us. So... Um, you know, if you see this on Netflix or HBO and it's Hans Zimmer talking about his new movie, I can't imagine if we do Hans's next movie is the live action Lion King, and that might be episode one. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, Walt Disney, they get just a little funny about <laughs> using their material. I heard there was this copyright act about right. <laughs> There is something there, so we'll see. Yeah. Ah, it's all an adventure. That's what's good. Great, fantastic. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming down and it's a wonderful film. Yeah. Uh, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.